Everybody likes Jesus, don't they? Everybody likes Jesus. I recently saw a picture of Ashton Kutcher, who's a famous actor. He, he loves Jesus. He says, Jesus is my homeboy, right? In fact, it's interesting. In the Muslim book, the Quran, Jesus is mentioned 93 times. Reminds me of when I was in college at Trinity University in San Antonio. I had a Jewish professor for American literature, and we were reading all the earliest American authors like Nathaniel Hawthorne and Herman Melville, and uh, we were reading Henry David Thoreau. And my Jewish professor said that if you really want to understand the metaphors that we find in the earliest American writers, you need to read this. He had a Bible. He said, the Bible. You need to read the Bible. Specifically, you need to read the New Testament. Now, I was shocked to hear my Jewish professor telling me that we needed to read the New Testament. I said, hey, glory, hallelujah, right? (laughs) Then he said something I'll never forget. He said, you know, I'm Jewish, but even I admire Jesus. Everybody likes Jesus. Mahatma Gandhi, who was a, a devout Hindu, he liked Jesus. In fact, he follows the models of nonviolence that is in the Sermon on the Mount taught by Jesus in the way that he sought to help India gain its independence. In fact, Mahatma Gandhi is famously quoted as saying, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. Wow, that's a little condemning to us today, huh? Now, if Gandhi, a Hindu, likes Jesus, and if Muslims view Jesus as a, a great prophet that their holy book mentions 93 times, and my old Jewish professor could say that he admires Jesus, then what is it that we believe about Jesus that's so different from what they believe? Why is it that we're Christian and they are not? What is it that we believe about Jesus that makes such a difference? And why does it really matter? To find out, open your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. John, chapter 5, it may be found on page 1132 of your pew Bible. John, chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. Before I read God's word, let's call upon his spirit to open our hearts and minds at the reading and the preaching of his holy word. Please join me as we pray. Holy Spirit, we're so grateful that you inspired John to put pen to paper so that we might have the words of Jesus today. I pray, O Lord, that as we read these words that John wrote, inspired by your spirit, your spirit might quicken our hearts and open our eyes to see what you want us to see and give us ears to hear what you want us to hear so that we might ultimately be transformed. Oh Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your holy sight. Through your son's precious name we pray and all God's people said, amen. John chapter five, beginning at verse one, listen to the word of the Lord. After this there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up and while I'm going another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. 
So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. I want to pause there just for a moment and point out that in our current day and age with all the different televangelists and different things, we have a lot of faith healers who say, well, if you just have enough faith, then God's going to heal you. And it's true in Luke chapter 8, there's a woman who has a hemorrhage, and in her hemorrhage and in, in a great faith, she, she reaches out and touches the hem of Jesus' robe, and she is instantly healed, trusting that Jesus had the power to heal. And, and so Jesus honors her faith and says, your faith has made you well. But this story in John 5 highlights the fact that God's healing power is not in any way dependent upon our faith. God in his sovereign will can heal whomever he wants to heal. This man at the pool didn't even know who Jesus was, and yet Jesus chose to heal him. Continuing our story. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see you are well, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, not because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Here ends the reading of God's word. As the prophet Isaiah tells us, the grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our Lord stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. The reason that the Jews crucified Jesus is because ultimately Jesus makes a claim to be equal to God, which would be considered blasphemous to a first century Jew. And the reason that we are Christians, followers of Christ, and different from Muslims than any other religion of the world is because we believe and the divinity of Christ. As Christians, we recognize that Jesus is God's one and only son who's fully God and fully man. As the opening of John's gospel states in John chapter one, it says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Then skipping down to verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt 
among us. If we want to know who God is, we simply look to Jesus. For he is God incarnate, God in the flesh. And God has sent his son Jesus to show us how to live and and ultimately how to love. Prior to the arrival of Jesus, we had the Ten Commandments. We had the Old Testament law. We knew what God's written word had to say, but we had no one who could show us how to love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We had no one to show us how to love our neighbor as ourselves. And then Jesus came as a baby in a lowly manger. He grew up among us, and he taught us, and he healed us, and ultimately he died for us so that we could be reconciled to God, so that we could be in a right relationship with God. As as Christians, we believe that Jesus is God, fully God and fully man. In fact, it was the church's recognition of the divinity of Jesus that ultimately led to the doctrine of the Trinity. You see, the word Trinity is nowhere in the Bible, nowhere in the Bible. And yet, early church fathers like Tertullian, who was in the second century, saw clearly passages in the New Testament that, like the one we just read where, where Jesus makes a claim to be equal to God. He says God is the Father and, and just as God the Father doesn't have to work on the Sabbath neither, uh, needs to work on the Sabbath, so do I work on the Sabbath. He, he makes himself and he says, I'm the judge. God the Father has made me the judge. I mean, Jesus is making very clear claims to be equal to God. And so you have these claims and you have the Gospel of John and, and Jesus is clearly claiming to be God and equal to God and yet in the Old Testament, We have the Shema, the most important commandment according to Jesus in all of the Bible, Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, where where Moses says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. The Jews were constantly reciting the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. There's only one God. And they were putting it on the doorposts of their homes, and they were saying it together when they would come together in corporate worship. The Deuteronomy, the Shema, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength. And so if the Old Testament clearly says there's only one God, and Jesus affirms the words of the Old Testament, and yet Jesus claims to be God, how are we to resolve that tension? How can there be just one God and yet Jesus can claim to be God? Because in verse 17 of our text, Jesus says, my father is working until now and I am working. After Jesus heals this man, his paralyzed man, on the Sabbath, he tells the man, get up, take your mat and walk. Well, the man gets the mat and he starts to walk and some rabbis in that day had written 39 rules about what kind of work you shouldn't do on the Sabbath, right? And as we read in Exodus uh, 31 just a moment ago, the Sabbath is a day of rest. We're not supposed to work. And so these rabbis had had clarified what kind of work you should and shouldn't be able to do. And and one of the 39th rule was you can't pick up your mat and walk. And and so they're like, they see a guy clearly breaking the rules and like, hey, what are you doing? And the guy blazes out, I don't, the guy who healed me told me to do this. You know, he's blaming Jesus, pass the buck, right? We all do that. And, uh, and he says, well, who is this man? He doesn't even know who it is. And then finally they confront Jesus about this. And Jesus says, my father is working until now and I am working. You see, every Jew knew that we were not supposed to work on the Sabbath. It's one of the Ten Commandments. We're supposed to honor it and keep it holy and rest on the Sabbath. We're supposed to come for worship like we're doing today. But they also knew that God was still at work on the Sabbath. Every time it would rain on the Sabbath, they knew that God was working on the Sabbath. 
Every time a baby was born on the Sabbath, they knew that God was working and blessing this family on the Sabbath. And so Jesus says, just as my heavenly Father is working, I too, as the Son of God, who's fully God and fully man, must be working as well. And Jesus goes on to elaborate his, about his relationship with God the Father in 19 and 23 of our text when he says, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father whom sent him. Wow. Jesus is taking his relationship to God the Father to a whole new level. Every Jew in the first century knew that the ultimate judge of the world is God. And Jesus is now saying as God's Son, as the Son of God, God the Father has given all judgment to me. Wow. That's amazing. And in the first century, every Jew knew that only God was supposed to be the judge. And yet Jesus is saying, I, as the Son of God, who is equal to God the Father, I have been given all judgment. Earliest church fathers, like Tertullian, wondered how the church can maintain the oneness of God while also expressing the divinity of Jesus, the divine nature of Jesus. How can there be one God and yet Jesus talks about God the Father and God the Son and then ultimately he'll later in John 16 talk about God the Holy Spirit. The answer to this dilemma is the doctrine of the Trinity. As Stuart mentioned last Sunday, God is three persons with one essence, one nature, one substance. In fact, the Nicene Creed, which was written in 325 AD, was written to help answer this question about God and and who God is and his essence and and what God is all about. In fact, in your bulletin, if you look at your bulletin right now, the second sentence there, I want us to read this together if we can, just look up on the screens. It says, we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten not made, of one being with the Father, through him all things were made. The Nicene Creed was written to clarify who is Jesus exactly. Is he of a similar substance as God or is he of the same substance? It was clarified by Athanasius and other earliest church fathers that he's the same substance. Now you may wonder why did it take till, till 325 to clarify that? Well, the first 300 years of the church, they were being persecuted, right? So they couldn't have like a big meeting of the church, ecumenical council of all people from all the churches. Hey, let's get together because then they would be killed. So they were always meeting in homes and silence and, 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 uh, and quiet. But when they were finally able to get together, there was this one group called the Arians who said, well, Jesus is like God, but not actually God. I mean, that, that would mean that there were two gods. That wouldn't be right. But no, as they looked at the gospel of John and they looked at the teachings of Jesus and the saints of Jesus, said, no, Jesus says he's God. And so they affirmed that in the Nicene Creed of one being with the Father. In the middle of evil ages, this diagram called the shield of the Trinity was created to help explain the Trinity. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are all God, but they're not all the same person. You see, the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. But the Father is not the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is not the Son, and the Son is not the Father. They're all three distinct persons. And yet all of one essence, one substance, so that they're all moving in concert, perfect unity together. 
That's why Jesus says in verse 19 of our text this morning, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. Jesus is always working in tandem with our heavenly father, always working in concert with our heavenly father. When Jesus decides to heal the the paralyzed man at the pool of Bethesda, it's because he knew that God the Father wanted him to heal that man. And like Jesus, don't we all want to walk in step with God, in tandem with our Heavenly Father? Because our Heavenly Father is always working. As Jesus states, he is always working. Anytime a hungry person gets fed or a sad person is comforted or a poor person is clothed or a homeless person is given shelter or a downtrodden person is given hope, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are at work. Our hearts opened so that we can walk in tandem with God today. Are we aware of how Jesus is working among us, even in the midst of hard times? Sadly, a few weeks ago, a child of this church, Jameson Gwynn, died of an overdose on drugs. After battling an addiction to drugs and alcohol for many years, Jameson had found a rehab center in California that seemed to be helping him, and and then he came back to Amarillo for what he had said was going to be a short visit, and he planned on going back to that rehab center in California. But before he left, he took one final hit of heroin that ultimately killed and took his life. It's so hard to see a young person die. And as I talked to different folks God is using this tragedy to help save lives. You see, Jameson's friends and many who were in his peer group have seen the tragic consequences that drugs can have. I know people will say, oh, well, marijuana, it's not addictive, it's not really that dangerous of a drug, but it leads down a road that ultimately leads to death. And many of Jameson's friends have seen how Jameson died of this overdose. By God's grace, They've been scared straight and they're, they're starting to recommit their lives to Jesus, seeking to follow and walk in the steps of Jesus. In fact, the, the Gap group that you heard from just a moment ago has created a, a memorial fund uh, on, on behalf of uh, Jameson Gwynn to help those young people who are trying to get out of an addiction to drugs or alcohol. Yes, God has a way of taking the, the suffering of one to help save the lives of many. We see this in the Bible quite clearly In the story of Joseph, you remember the story of Joseph, Genesis chapter 50, it's the last uh, story that we find in Genesis. Uh, You may have seen the musical, The Amazing Technicolored Coat. In fact, I understand our own Chuck Alexander was in that uh, show many years ago when they did it at ALT. The Amazing Technicolored Coat. Joseph is one of the youngest sons of Israel, and Israel likes Joseph uh, the most, and so he gives him this great coat, and his brothers are envious of him, and so you remember how the story goes. What they do is they sell Joseph into slavery and to, uh, to become a slave in Egypt. Joseph becomes a slave in Egypt, and then through a, a false accusation of Potiphar's wife, Joseph is eventually thrown into prison as a slave in, in Egypt. Yet God is with Joseph even in prison. And God is able to use Joseph to interpret the, the dreams of the cupbearer and the, and the, the bread uh, maker, the baker for, the, for Pharaoh. And Joseph gives an accurate interpretation. So later when Pharaoh has a dream, the cupbearer says, hey, there was a guy named Joseph who was able to interpret my dream. You should go and speak to him, Pharaoh, if you want someone to interpret your dream since you're having these troubling dreams. And so Joseph speaks to Pharaoh and, and Joseph says, here, come to give me the interpretation. And of course, Joseph gives all glory to God. He says, I can't give you the interpretation, but God will. 
And so the Pharaoh tells Joseph his dreams. You remember the dreams, right? There were seven fat calves. And then after these seven fat calves are these seven scrawny calves who eat the seven fat calves. And there's this seven bountiful wheat uh, harvest. And then there's the seven scrawny that's consumed the, the bountiful wheat. And Joseph says, this is the, the, the interpretation that God has given you. And he's given it to you twice because he intends to do it. You're going to have seven years of bountiful harvest, and then you're going to have seven years of famine. And Pharaoh, you need to make preparations for those seven years of famine. Well, Pharaoh is so overwhelmed by Joseph's ability to interpret these dreams that he says, is there anyone in whom the Spirit of the Lord is on like this man, Joseph? And so Pharaoh makes Joseph his right-hand guy. Joseph goes from being a slave to now he's the right-hand guy of Pharaoh. Well, they make preparations during the seven years of bountiful harvest to be ready for the seven years of famine. And when the seven years of famine come, people from all over the known world begin to come to Egypt to get food because it's the only country that was prepared. And eventually, the older brothers of Joseph show up, and they show up to get some food. And Joseph recognizes his older brothers. And eventually, Joseph reveals himself to his older brothers and says, hey, I'm Joseph, whom you sold into slavery. As you can imagine, the older brothers freak out, right? Like, oh, no. And you're the right-hand guy of Pharaoh. You can take uh, revenge on us for what we did to you. But Joseph doesn't do that, does he? Now, Joseph saw how God in his great economy was working even in the midst of his own tragedy, even in the midst of his own suffering. Joseph was able to see how God was at work. And so he offers these words of blessing to his brothers in Genesis chapter 50. Genesis chapter 50, verses 19 to 20, where Joseph says, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive, as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Through great faith, Joseph was able to see how his suffering ultimately helped save lives. Are we able to see how the hardships of this life can be used by God for good? Specifically, are we able to see how Jesus can work through our suffering? After all, Jesus knows a little bit about how suffering can ultimately be used for good, doesn't he? Though he was innocent, Jesus suffered and died on a cross so that our sins might be atoned for once and for all, so that we might have life, eternal life, if we simply believe in him. As Jesus states in the last verse of our text this morning, John 5, verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Have you heard God's word today? To believe that God is who he says, that Jesus is who he says he was. The son of God, fully God and fully man, who came to this earth to die a death he did not deserve, so that we could have the gift of eternal life that we could never earn on our own. As we head into this Advent season and celebrate the birth of Jesus, we have to recognize that why Jesus came. Jesus came as a great act of humility on God's part. In perfect obedience to our Heavenly Father, Jesus, who was God, became a baby on a manger. And this baby grew up among us, and ultimately he taught us and he healed us, And eventually he died as the perfect atoning sacrifice for our sins. And then on the third day, he rose again, conquering sin and death on our behalf so that we might have the the gift, the assurance of eternal life if we simply believe in him. 
Yes, it's the reality of the resurrection that helps us see that Jesus was who he says he was. The Son of God, co-eternal with the Father, of the same substance, of one being with the Father, as the Nicene Creed states. And the divinity of Jesus, it makes all the difference, doesn't it? For us, Jesus isn't just a great teacher that we should listen to. Jesus is our Lord, and we must obey. For us, Jesus isn't just a great prophet who points us to God. Jesus is God incarnate in the flesh, whom alone we should worship. For us, Jesus isn't just a great miracle worker who heals people. Jesus is God, the source of all miracles, whom we should pray to each day. Yes, it's the reality of the divinity of Jesus that ultimately led to the doctrine of the Trinity. And it's the doctrine of the Trinity that helps us see that God in his essence is a divine, loving community, a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, a community that's so intimate that the three are actually one, moving in concert together to do the work of God's kingdom. And in Genesis chapter one, we read that we were created in the image of that God. As human beings who are created in the image of God, we uh, recognize that we're created in the image of this triune God. We recognize that we were created for community, created to be a part of an unconditional, sacrificial, loving community. We're working together in concert together. We might point others to the glory of God. As a church body, are we connected in such a way, connected by the love of Christ, connected by the power of the Holy Spirit, that we can see Jesus working among us? Can we see him at work in and through us? Are we willing to join Jesus in what he's doing today? We will be able to see Jesus working among us in and through us if we will prayerfully ask God each and every day to open our eyes to how Jesus is work. As Jesus said in John at chapter 5, verse 17 of our text, my father is working until now and I am working. Jesus is at work. Are we willing to join him in what he's doing today, which is the saving of many lives? We will humbly pray that God might give us eyes to see and God might give us a heart that is willing to serve. Then Jesus will show us how we can participate in his saving work today. Please join me as you pray. Gracious and loving God, we give you thanks for the great gift of your son, our savior, Jesus Christ, who came to this earth to be for us the way, the truth, and life. We thank you, Lord, that you did not abandon us in our sin, but you sent your son who was without sin to pay the price for our sins with his death on a cross. And then on the third day, he conquered sin and death on our behalf so that we might be saved, so that we might have the assurance of eternal life. And now you have sent your Holy Spirit to equip us to do the work of your kingdom. So Lord, I pray that we might, by your spirit, have our eyes opened so that we can see your, you working among us. And you might give us a heart that's willing to serve alongside you. So that we, in concert together, might work and walk and step with you, O oh God, and bring glory to you today. We pray this in the strong and precious name of your Son, who is the Christ. And all God's people said,